This show is produced by the Brennis Female Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu Podcast. Ubuntu is known as Africa's gift to the world. It's the philosophy that highlights our common humanity and the idea that we are all interconnected. Social justice is in my genes, with my family being very active in the fight to end apartheid, and my grandfather, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, heading up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This show is about what we can learn from the human experience when we realize we are interconnected and acknowledge each other's point of view. The Ubuntu way of life has brought my life so much value and learning, and I hope it can bring you the same. If you liked today's episode, hit subscribe, give the show a review, and join me as I talk to amazingly inspiring guests who are on a similar journey, fighting for justice and learning along the way. Today, my guest is Pumzile Mlambo Nuka. She is the UN Undersecretary General and Executive Director of UN Women, but most importantly, a fellow South African. After being actively involved in the struggle to end apartheid, she was a member of parliament in our country's first democratic government and served as the Deputy President of South Africa from 2005 to 2008. She is responsible for the He for She campaign, a global effort to engage men and boys in removing the social and cultural barriers that prevent women and girls from achieving their potential. She is a PhD from the University of Warwick in the UK and is the founder of the Mlambo Foundation, which supports leadership and education. Here's our conversation. My name is Pumzile Mlambo Nuka. I am the Executive Director of UN Women. Thank you for coming on the Everyday Ubuntu podcast today. Um, Before I start, I want to make a note that I was raised and surrounded by strong women, so I very much appreciate you speaking with me today. Um, And the first question has to do with a strong woman in my life, my mother, who is a public speaker and a priest and Whenever she, you know, gets introduced, she's introduced as the daughter of, which sometimes is cringing to me. But um, people also assume that they know her because they hear her introduction. And she has said to them, you know, her resume is not a full explanation of who she is as a person. And you, someone who I'm sure hears your introduction a hundred times a week, is there something in it that is missing that you think people should know about you? Uh, well, maybe it's more something that uh, I would rather emphasize with about myself, uh, that I'm, I'm actually a school teacher. And uh, that is uh, what I think defines me. Um, because uh, if you strip me of all the other titles that I've, I've had and people know about me, that is the one that really uh, matters to me. And uh, I'm very passionate about teaching. I did read that you were you know, very passionate about education. And I know that you were in university at the time of the uprisings. And, and so do you... Do you have something that you say to people who these days, you know, have never had to fight for their right to education? Uh, Well, for one, I'm glad that they don't have to fight for their education because uh, I don't think that uh, children um, have to be 
a, a hero every day in order to go to school. Uh, mm -hmm. But I also would say they really need to embrace and take advantage of the opportunity because uh, education is the one thing that no one can ever take away from you once you have it. So okay. if you become displaced from your country, you become a refugee, you could always rise up and re-establish yourself because of your education. So it is very precious. It's not your family background that would help you. It's not your looks. It's, it's not what you used to have. Education just becomes part of your DNA and it's, it's, it's very precious. In addition to describing yourself as a school teacher, uh, you know, I see you as a political activist and what spurred you to be a political activist at such a young age? You know, actually, um, I don't have a, an aha moment. Uh, my political activism uh, was gradual. Um, it was uh, fighting for the small things, um, you know, like access uh, to desks in, in a school where there were not enough desks for all uh, the, uh, the students and trying to make sure that we can hold on to one in a classroom and then recognizing that uh, actually all of us deserve a desk, you know, and then uh, that, lets, that led to something else um, in the community when in your streets, at that, during my time, we used to fetch water from the street. Um, and then before I knew, everything was worth fighting for. And I, I just became consumed uh, as, uh, by politics. By the time I got to university, uh, you could actually see that apartheid was uh, everywhere. And, um, you know, the rest is history. And also, if I may say, during my youth, uh, it was much more easier to some extent to be an activist than not to be. Uh, because there was just... Uh, so much to fight for and also the system was fighting back so even if you wanted to give up and you'll be reminded by the system because something would happen to one part of the country and you'd, you'd remember that hey we have this work to do uh, so they were constant reminders looking at where we are now um with with COVID around the world, and then you know um, the racial reckoning, if we should call it that, in the U.S. Holding on to hope for justice, I think, is hard right now. So how how did you hold on to your dreams for a free South Africa in in the days of apartheid? You know, I actually did believe that uh, we would uh, triumph. Um. And I had reached this point that uh, 
sitting back and doing nothing was not an option. Um, and mm -hmm. I think uh, there just was that hope that uh, there's a light at the end of the tunnel and it's not an oncoming train. <laughs> and there were so many of us <laughs> uh, that you didn't feel isolated. Uh, you were part of a community that was going somewhere. Um, I think uh, when we are in a country where the majority uh, is oppressed and fighting, it's probably easier to be hopeful because there are so many uh, of you who are affected. Well, so then, you know, connecting to sort of what you said about education, I think intelligence is not just intellectual. And so uh, with the problems that we have today, I think a lot of it is a lack of emotional intelligence. Um, do you see that or do you think that there's something greater that ails the world right now? Uh, well, I, I mean, uh, intelligence is important uh, so that you can make informed decision and evidence-based decisions as well. Uh, emotional intelligence is also important so that you are rounded. Uh, but I think uh, we also need um, to make sure that uh, we have humility with education uh, because also um, humility makes you not to see yourself as a superhero. Uh, I find that the more I learn, is the more humble I become because I realize just how much there is to know that I don't know. And I think that humble um, effect uh, of education sometimes is what helps many people who are uh, educated not to assume that they know everything. Mm -hmm. uh, but in addition, I think uh, something that I think is missing though in education is to instill integrity uh, alongside education so that the, the most educated people in countries are not the most corrupt. Um, I think that is the failure of our education system, especially tertiary education. I, I keep complaining. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be kicked out of universities these days because I see, you know, people who still are not the ones who dropped out of school, I mean, who's still big and uh, who's, uh, stealing affects the most vulnerable. It's usually those that have the really nice certificate, uh, the nice uh, salary, uh, the insurance, uh, the medical aid. It's not the ones uh, that left school at primary. So I think there is something that we need to do to, to complete. I think we're seeing it now in, in our country. Uh, starting maybe at primary school, just to make sure that when a child is caught copying uh, from another child, you talk to them about how wrong that is, that they cannot have marks they have not worked for. And we accompany them with that in education. It has to be in our curriculum. 
because by the time you get to university, plagiarism is a crime. Yeah. You know, it can make you lose your degree. But maybe we don't emphasize those things, uh, uh, you know, hard enough uh, for them to make sense. And when they graduate, uh, they should know that the certificate gives you the right to work and to earn uh, what you have worked for, not what we have not worked for. So I've really been uh, struggling with, with that question, which I had not paid enough attention to before. But I think right now, you know, I think it's something worth repeating over and over again. You come from home. You're obviously at home right now. So I don't have to explain Ubuntu to you. Is there a time in your career, whether past or current, where you feel you are witnessing Ubuntu in action or a person that you really look to? Uh, I think in African uh, families, we witness Ubuntu every day. And most of us have uh, witnessed that and probably did not call it Ubuntu because maybe you even <laughs> take it for granted. And that is the whole extended family uh, thing. Most of us uh, did not grow up in nuclear families. Uh, there's always been other people uh, to live with, uh, to share whatever was there. And because uh, you were the child in born in that family, you did not have uh, you are not first in line. And I think that was like, again, everyday Ubuntu. Uh, that was not overanalyzed. Uh, that no one actually, those who received the people into the family did not question. The parents who made the decision about who comes to live in their space uh, made that with, with such ease. It, it, it was, there was no fuss about it. There was no meeting to just decide. Sometimes people came to visit for a week and they stayed for four years. <laughs> um, you know, and and I and I, I and I think uh, this is something that we have to try to protect and to instill in our children who now live in the suburbs, and may um, think that uh, just being. Uh, me, my husband, and my dog uh, is the best thing because you could actually deny someone else uh, a life that could be game-changing and destiny-changing for them just because you couldn't have them sleep in your spare bedroom. Mm -hmm. And in those days, in our four-roomed house, there, wasn't, there was nothing like a spare bedroom. No, the couch, the floor. You know, but, but, but there was only room for every day. So I just think that this is an example that everyone and most people can relate to. With COVID, what, what have you learned about how we are meant to deal with it as a collective? You know, I, I think when I look at people in the U.S., we haven't gotten there yet, where we realize that we are inextricably linked and we need to be caring for each other. Is there something that you've learned that you could tell my listeners and how they should be responding to COVID? Well, I think um, the importance of solidarity. 
Uh, I mean, this is a disease that uh, has taught us that we're all the same. Uh, you could be a, a prime minister of a country that has been a, an empire, a British empire, with all the protection that could be offered uh, and still get COVID. You could be a poor person uh, living in a favela in Brazil, you could get COVID. Um, you could be a, a student uh, in a school in a rural area and you could get COVID. Uh, so I think nothing shows the importance of solidarity like COVID and the fact that uh, a virus anywhere is a virus everywhere. Uh, so it really uh, 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 teaches us about the importance uh, of caring for other people so that you are also cared for. Because if you don't care for them, uh, and then you are neglecting the rest of the people. If they don't care for themselves, they are neglecting you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we are all in this together. Wear a mask, people. <laughs> Wear um, a mask, yeah. <laughs> well, you said, okay, so you said solidarity, and I know that you were responsible for the He for She campaign, which is, you know, it's the global effort to engage men and boys in removing the cultural and the social barriers that prevent women and girls from achieving their full potential. What gave you the inspiration for that? Well, uh, anyway, I think that will answer one of your other questions because he for she was inspired uh, in part uh, by the experience of uh, fighting apartheid, where you learned that you have to mobilize the people who benefit from your oppression, that it's not good enough for those who are affected uh, to, to be the only fighters. Women should not just be the only ones who are fighting uh, for gender equality. Uh, men mm -hmm. as well have to be partners and you have to invest in mobilizing them. Uh, uh, you know, one thing that I think Madiba taught us very well uh, was the importance of uh, speaking to the people you most disagree with, which can be painful Mm -hmm. uh, which can be discouraging, but it has to be done because otherwise you continuously are preaching for the choir and you are not breaking new ground. So he for she was and still is an effort uh, to fill up the tent uh, with the people who are helping uh, to move forward. They may not fully even believe the story and and the fight, but we'll even take the half measures and make sure that you rather even just neutralize them uh, so that uh, uh, you, you can have a, a larger pool of people who are on the right side of history. So then what do you think 
is the greatest challenge facing women and girls internationally? Uh, I think uh, the biggest challenge uh, now is the normalization of prejudice against women and girls, which is so difficult to change. Because uh, I think there's an illusion of progress when it comes to uh, gender equality. We have not progressed as much as we should have by 2020, really. Uh, our best, mm -hmm. what we regard as our best right now is not good enough. So this prejudice is the prejudice that would make a girl in a family that does not have resources uh, to be the one that is sacrificed when there isn't enough money to go to school because the normalization of discrimination against a girl um, is something that might not raise eyebrows just as much. We still have that. Or the prejudice that we'll see a girl graduate on top of a class. When she gets to the workplace after university, she still isn't the one that is given the plum job. A man who comes with mediocrity gets the plum job. Uh, it is the prejudice that would enable uh, a woman to experience violence in her family members, her own family, the family of her partner, people around her uh, do not stand up for it. They become bystander because it's kind of like uh, normal. Men beat up women. So we really have to fight harder for this prejudice, which is not making us go far enough, fast enough. Uh, because it's all over the world. If you think a country like Iceland, which meets uh, almost all the uh, requirements for a gender equal society, it's the country that ticks all of most of the boxes uh, better than any country. But that country is battling gender-based violence. So there is this normalization of prejudice against women, uh, which we, which is a global fight, and we then we need to fight it uh, everywhere and anywhere in the world. Well, I'm here to fight that. Um, I when you said about the job, it made me think that I have a friend who, whenever I'm insecure about applying to jobs, she says, "Mungi, just have the confidence of a mediocre white man, and yeah, you'll be okay." Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> mediocre men so, are ruling the world. But, so then, in this in this global fight, is there a quote or a phrase that keeps you going and? and moving because you are moving and shaking a lot? You know, um, I always am focused on not sweating the small stuff. Uh, if you are a leader, you are exposed to a lot of noise and it can mm -hmm. actually distract you. Uh, 
and you could waste a lot of time on small things. Really, it is important not to sweat the small stuff and just keep your eyes on the ball so that you are focused and you are investing on the things that really matter. But also uh, uh, linked to that is learning not to take yourself so serious that you cannot find the joke in you. So that when there is something you do, uh, which makes you a jerk, <laughs> you know, uh, mm -hmm. which uh, people find uh, uh, even foolish and funny, you are unable to laugh with them because you take yourself so serious because you think maybe you are important or you think you are perfect. Just chill a bit. That too helps mm -hmm. you to focus uh, on the things that matter. Okay, well, one of the big things you've also done is you started the Mlambo Foundation. Could you share a bit about that? Well, Mlambo Foundation is a modest uh, uh, foundation that works on uh, teach, I mean, uh, 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 leadership in education, especially uh, with mm -hmm. the school principals to support them to see much further than their students and their teachers, because these days we're preparing children for a future we have not completely seen. We cannot define. And uh, it is teaching them not just to uh, learn and pass, it is teaching them to be perpetual learners because they are going to have to constantly adapt uh, because the jobs that they are preparing for may not even exist at the time when they are at school. So it was focusing both on just the, the hard uh, leadership skills and management, uh, but also a lot about technology uh, in order to anticipate the future of work that is uh, 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 driven by technology. And we started in 2008, and at that time, uh, even though there was a lot of talk about technology, people, the appreciation of how much technology is going to be uh, fundamental in our lives was not uh, obvious. Uh, and so it was uh, really heavy lifting, even for the principals that were saying, I man, eh, mamunga, events man, twenty events, for security, <laughs> and this thing about yeah. you and computers and 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 so on. But man, look at where we are now. How overnight the world changed, and we recognize how much we need uh, uh, these uh, skills. So right now we are trying to. We have had to revise our business plans, like many other institutions uh, to respond to COVID. And we are foc still focusing on leadership. And as far as school principals, it is about uh, uh, creating a community of practice amongst the principals we work with so that they can exchange lessons, how to be resilient, to be a resilient leader in a time of crisis, uh, how to also 
uh, nurture uh, the people that you have a responsibility over teachers, uh, children, and mm -hmm. supports the parents where there is a lot of grief. Um, how also to also understand that you, you are also in a country with a government that does not have all the answers that you need. So you also have to be a creator of answers. So that community of practice and a platform is where they do a lot of exchange of lessons. And they can all be vulnerable because they are uh, peers. And we have been joined by teachers from Kenya, uh, Malawi, uh, DRC. So it's very nice when they exchange experience also with principals of other countries. We also are teaching uh, teachers how to teach virtually because uh, this is not what they mm -hmm. trained to do at teacher training college. And they also haven't always had gadgets and in some cases still don't have gadgets. So this transition of uh, teaching online is on itself a mission. So we are getting help ourselves to provide the skills uh, from the experts uh, on, 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 on teaching online, because also that is also what my PhD was about. But obviously, I didn't do enough practice. So I need in my foundation the support of other people. And then we have children in my foundation from the schools that we work with, that we have given scholarships. Whenever someone offers us money for scholarship, it always depends on if somebody has given us money for scholarship. So we're always looking for someone to donate for a scholarship. And then we take them through scholarship. And it's just been wonderful to see how well they have done because all of these are poor schools. So they are CAs, they are engineers, they are environmental scientists, mm -hmm. and we always push them uh, to take uh, the, the, the subjects that will make them stand out. And, uh, and I'm really proud that they've done that. And then we are making them go back to school to become motivators uh, of the others, to tell them, I used to sit in that desk back in the day, look at where mm -hmm. I am now. So this can happen to you too. You're helping leaders, but you are also a leader yourself. And I would say that you are a hero to many of us, but who are your heroes? You know, um, I have to say, uh, I have different types of heroes, including yourself. Uh, you know, uh, at a family level, my mom is my hero because she is just mm -hmm. so resilient. Uh, I used to think that she was a, just a busy bee, but I now realize <laughs> this is a woman who does not take no for an answer when she is determined to achieve something. But also I grew up at a time when uh, we lived in the same space with that generation of a uh, or Mam Susulu, or Mandela, or Arch, or Arch. So you are not short of people uh, who are role models and to look up to. I always say to South Africans, we have been so blessed uh, with people to look up to. 
if we mess up, we really have ourselves to blame uh, because we've been exposed mm -hmm. to many people. But recently, I am so inspired by young people who are walking their own path, doing their thing, like you are doing your thing, uh, who are self-starters, uh, who are creating, who are tackling the environment, uh, who are creating apps, who are writing books. Um, yeah, so, you know, I'm, I, I just look at them and I, 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 wish, I, wish, I, I wish I could moongi when I grow up. <laughs> what is your greatest fear for humanity? And what, I think I know the answer to the second question, what kind of things are you doing to stop that fear from coming to pass? You know, my greatest fear is that uh, the level of uh, division and discord that we have in the world uh, right mm -hmm. now with the rise of right-wing populism uh the so what when you see others uh, uh in pain uh that uh, that becomes uh, the mainstream uh because even though uh, we have these many differences that we have in the world there's always been a place where people are able to come together that is why we have a humanitarian uh, community at a large scale but even at a small scale within our own communities uh, you know that that ubuntu we're talking mm -hmm. about uh, so i'm hoping that we will not have the level of indifference and confrontation uh, that actually just uh, creates a line there are those who are with you and there are those who are against. You can be different and differ in so many things, but you could still be in a position to live and work together and have empathy for each other in times of difficulties. I am just worried about the kind of uh, discourse that we, we have now, where if you are against me, you are my enemy. We just don't disagree because disagreeing doesn't mean that we're enemies. There's there's like a lack of yeah. care for someone else's humanity. So you you may have answered this, but what is your greatest hope for humanity then? And what do you think might make that a reality? I don't know uh, if I I know the answer very clearly, but I just know that staying involved mm -hmm whatever you are doing, because I think uh, we bring different things uh, to, to these problems. Staying involved and being supportive of each other within and beyond our families and at a broader scale uh, where you, when you have the right platform. And as you know today, a platform is anything. Uh, it's just so wonderful when you hear people who are doing different things and knowing that this is not just for me, this is for others uh, to use. When Sia Kolisi say, I am using my platform, it is music in my ears. When uh, uh, 
a musician says, I am using my platform as my voice. When the sports personalities in the US saying they are using their platform to fight, when Zozi says, I'm using my platform. So it's for everybody to find their platform because we all have a, a platform of one sort or the other. Uh, so if we can all find the platform and make absolutely your hashtag, you know, your social media, your <laughs> tweets. Okay, I like I like that yeah. finding finding the platform. Well, I know that you have a full day of UN work to do, so I won't keep you. But I wanted to say thank you so much, like Enkosi, so so much. I really appreciate you finding the time to speak with me. Yeah, no, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.